Last week, we saw in our text in the previous passage in John's Gospel that the church can expect to face hostility, which Jesus called the hatred of the world. Not always, but certainly regularly. And Jesus warned us, he warned his disciples, he warned the church in that passage to arm us, right, to steal our will, to ensure that we're not surprised. And after all, he himself has been the target, right, of, of murderous rage and of misunderstanding and of a whole range of responses, right, to Jesus from indifference to outright rejection. And he says at the front end of, of this passage, he hints at it anyway, he says, now that I'm leaving, now that I'm returning to the Father, then you, my disciples, the church, you will now become the principal target of the world's ire, of the world's hatred and hostility. And so, something powerful is going to need to be given to equip disciples, right? To convince the world, which lies in this state, right, of hatred, of alienation, something powerful is needed and something powerful is indeed promised in the text. Namely, the Holy Spirit. God himself. The third person of the Holy Trinity what Jesus has already called another advocate, another Jesus, if you will. So at the outset, then, there's a sort of setting that our minds have to have to grasp a text like this. Right? We tend to think, I think we can slide into thinking that the Holy Spirit is a sort of boost or injection for our spiritual lives. Jesus describes his coming against the backdrop of a world that crucified the Son of God. And so the Spirit then is first and foremost sovereign power to wrench the world out of its darkness. That is why the Spirit is given. In other words, you have a sort of contest here. You have a hostile, murderous, bloodthirsty, raging world that will hate the disciples, that will pile up millions of Christian martyrs. And Jesus says, here's how I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to send another advocate, the Holy Spirit. So all nerf bally, cream puffy ideas of the Holy Spirit are out the window already. The Holy Spirit is what I send from on high onto this world. So when He comes... The Holy Trinity himself comes in fullness. And so I want to look at the Spirit's work in this text under two headings. The Spirit and the world and the Spirit and the church. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. The Spirit and the world, the Spirit and the church. Now before we, we get to the heart of this, Jesus sets the table here with a little bit of an attitude adjustment for his disciples. He's been telling them that he's going to the one who sent him into the world. And he says, you can see this in verse 5 and 6, he says, none of you ask me, none of you ask me, where are you going? 
Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said this. Right? This is a sort of mild chastisement, or at least it's an adjustment. Right? Jesus says, like, in the face of his speaking to them about his coming exaltation to the Father, he says something like this. About that, you have a surprising lack of curiosity. None of you ask me, where are you going? It's funny. They're like, well, he's going. We don't know. He's talking about going. I mean, they express a little dismay and confusion, but they're not really interested in his destiny. The ascension is not on their radar as a thing of great importance. What they are interested in, Jesus says, is their own loss. You're filled with grief because I said these things. And Jesus thinks this is a, an unreasonable sadness. They lack a kind of order and proportion. Their sadness is too big. And their curiosity about the ascension is way too small. And so Jesus starts to remedy this by saying to them words they would have found really strange. It is for your good. It's to your advantage that I'm going away. So, you know, get more, get more accent on the ascension. Get less on your condition. And this would sound, as I said, incredible to them. And since they haven't asked about it, Jesus is going to explain to them why this would be a good thing. And he says this, he says, unless I go away, unless I go away, the advocate or the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. John has previously told us way back in chapter 7 that the spirit won't be given until Jesus is glorified, until he's exalted. So it's a simple matter, really. Jesus, incarnate on earth, in his humanity, in his state of humility, can only be in one place at a time. And among other things, the gift of the Holy Spirit transcends that limitation. Shatters that boundary, if you will. It extends the ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus a Catholic, small c, universal figure for the whole world. So it's good, Jesus says, that I go away. The Spirit is another advocate, a helper, a mediator of the presence of Jesus. And when he comes, the Spirit's not just with the disciples, but now in the disciples. Or to put it plainly, Jesus is saying, look, when I go away, the world gets more of me, not less. Right? More of Jesus, not less. You know what the Holy Spirit is in classical Reformation theology? He is the vicar of Christ. Right? The Pope is not the vicar of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the personal, authoritative infallible, universal presence of Jesus Christ to the church. And we don't need a vicar for the vicar. We have a vicar. One who stands in the presence of the other one who is gone. And that's the Spirit. And so the gift of the Spirit means that Jesus now reigns. 
He reigns in universal power and fullness. And that the messianic age promised by the prophets has now broken in and is underway. And so the Spirit means Jesus is active in the world, all of the world. And we see the world then charged as Christians with the mystery of his presence. As a place which is the theater of his glory. And we think of this Jesus as the defining feature, the decisive thing about the cosmos. Not a simple addition, not a Christian slap of paint on the top of it, but the center of things. And so when he comes, the Spirit, primarily through the disciples, through the church, is going to do work in the world. It's a wonderful thing that the Spirit is at work in the world. Even maybe when we're sleeping, the Spirit has been sent and the Spirit is at work. So it's a good thing, Jesus tells these frightened disciples, that I'm leaving. This, of course, should put an end to all of the romantic, oh, I wish I had been there with Jesus by the Sea of Galilee to walk with him sort of talk. That might be understandable, but that's sentimental. And you know what's also wrong with it? It has no sense of the history of redemption moving forward to a climax. Right? That, That the Bible is not a collection of devotional stories, right? It's, it's a narrative of God's mighty actions in Jesus Christ, first in Israel, then in Christ, then in the church. It's, it's got a plot. It moves forward. It has echoes back and forth, and it goes to an end. And it is better. It is good. It is an immense privilege that you live on the other side of Pentecost. And to romantically long to be back there so you could walk around with Jesus, as understandable as it is, is actually a grievous kind of mistake. And so Jesus tells his disciples what he's been telling them from the beginning. It's good for you to be where you are. And this spirit then, that he sends, verse 8, is going to prove something, demonstrate. The The words here are legal words. This is depicted as if you are living in a kind of cosmic courtroom drama with witnesses and testimony and judgments being rendered. So he uses this word that the Spirit will convict or prove or expose or demonstrate that the world is wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. For the church... Right? We speak of the Holy Spirit as our counselor. Right? That's a legal word, right? Our counselor, our advocate. But for the world, he's a prosecuting attorney. And he is going to work mightily on the world's hardness, our blindness, our hostility, the injustice of the world. This is a great comfort for the church. God does not give up on the world. He loves the world. He sent the Son to save the world. And despite the world's hatred, He sends the Spirit, another advocate, a mediator of the presence of Jesus, into the world. And the Spirit works. He will prove the world wrong about sin. Jesus says this in verse 9, because people don't believe in Me. Jesus 
is now vindicated. He's exalted. And the world's rejection of him is shown objectively to be folly. He was not a sinner. But the world lies in sin. The world is estranged from God. And the root of sin, right, the the sin that's underneath all sin, is unbelief. They don't believe in me. And so the Spirit penetrates into the hearts of people and convicts and cuts and goes into the darkness and raises people out of death into new life. The Spirit is the great apologist, the great defender of the faith. He also proves the world wrong about righteousness. The world is full of empty and fraudulent righteousness. And Jesus' opponents, they were very confident in their righteousness. Right? But they were wrong. They were wrong about the temple. They were wrong about the law. They were wrong about the Sabbath. They were wrong about their own goodness. It's a tragic thing, but it's very easy for us human beings to go through life wrong about a lot of big things, including ourselves. And they rendered what they thought was a righteous judgment on Jesus. But his condemnation demonstrates their unrighteousness. This is the great irony at the center of the gospel drama. The righteous one is now vindicated, and he sends the Holy Spirit to convince the world that it's wrong about righteousness. And at the same time, Jesus says this is true about judgment. I'll convince the world they're wrong about judgment. Why? Because the prince of the world is condemned. Again, the point here is this. The false and corrupt and blind judges who crucified Jesus rendered their verdict, their judgment, right, through the prince of this world. But that verdict has been reversed in the resurrection, and God has rendered judgment for Jesus Christ against the prince of the world, who now already, Satan, stands condemned in anticipation of his final sentencing. So step back from this just a little bit. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. What ties these three things together really is quite simple. It is the fact that the Spirit proves that the rejected Jesus is now vindicated. Right? That he is now exalted. That is what the Spirit testifies to. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is vindicated. Exalted to the right hand of God, he then pours forth this spirit. Jesus, then, is the soul of the spirit's testimony. The spirit says to the world, he is enthroned as prophet, priest, and king in the heavenly tabernacle. And the world, in its unbelief, in its unrighteous judgments, is shown to be false. And so that's the courtroom drama that the spirit plays out with the world. The second thing here is the Spirit's work in the church. The Spirit's work in the church. Now, for the world, the Spirit convicts or the Spirit exposes. But for the church, He guides. He teaches. He's a defense attorney outside, right? He's a prosecutor outside and a defense attorney inside. He's your defense attorney. 
So I've already alluded to it, but he, he says again here that the Spirit will basically illumine my glory. So put simply, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. He's like a finger. He points to Jesus. And so that means he's pointing to the fullness of Christ's glory, to the completeness of his work, to the, to the majesty of his teaching, to his current enthronement. He is pointing, pointing, pointing to Christ. And Jesus says in verse 12, I have much more to tell you now, but you can't, you can't bear it now. So on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension, your privileged side, the side you sit on this morning, the spirit of truth will come and guide them and guide us into all the truth. Now, it's important to see this upper room discourse is primarily referring to the 11 disciples in the room with Jesus. This is particularly important right here. Of course, it applies to us as well in a secondary sense, but none of us is an apostle. None of us was in that inner circle. We have to remember who's being addressed here. And the reason this is important here is if we don't get it right, we will tend to think that the Spirit continues to supply new revelations, right? new insights of fundamental truth to the church down through the ages. That's not what the text is saying. Even though at first glance, it could be read that way. This apostolic core... They are going to be guided into all the truth. All the truth. Jesus himself is the truth. And the Spirit through these men will uniquely, once for all, expound the truth of who Jesus is for the church in all ages. Thus, these men, later Paul, who was called in a unique way, these men will be laid laying the foundation of the church. They will be led to write the New Testament scriptures, including this very gospel. You're not called to do that. That work doesn't continue. We're led by the same Spirit into the truth by turning to the deposit of truth, the New Testament documents that this apostolic core left us. This is very important to get here. They are the foundation We are the superstructure. And getting this wrong leads to a lot of mischief. God spoke. He spoke a final word, a full word, a glorious, definitive word in these last days in his son. And that speech is filled out. That speech is brought to its completion through the apostles being led into all truth. And that fullness of truth comes to us through the New Testament scriptures, and we appeal to those. So the point here is that we are not given some sort of privileged insider information by the Holy Spirit. We could argue that these men were, but we are not. It is a great danger to think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of personal life coach. Right? Sort of standing on your shoulder, whispering little supplemental directions to Scripture in your ear. 
leaving you with this impression or that impression. None of that is in this text, nor in any New Testament text about the Spirit. Yet it seems to be the default setting for American Christians and the Spirit. But even with these original disciples, what did the Holy Spirit do? He simply fills out the public implications of what Jesus said and did. Right? It's very clear in this text that even the Spirit is not an innovator. He just unveils Jesus' ministry to us. So to be filled with the Spirit would for us mean to be obsessed with the text of Holy Scripture. That's what Spirit-filled people are occupied with. Otherwise, there's all sorts of disorder. He will speak, Jesus says, of the Spirit. Notice this. He will speak only what he hears. Verse 13. Now remember, Jesus spoke only what he heard from the Father. And the Spirit will speak only what he hears from Jesus. So there's a strict discipline even in the, in the work of the triune God. He will declare things to come, meaning the, the general course of the future that we have in the New Testament scriptures, that we have in the book of Revelation. In all of this, the Spirit's mission is very simple. Very simple. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. The Spirit comes to show you the radiance and the splendor of Jesus Christ. He guides you into the truth. He glorifies Christ. Right? Those are the twin passions of Spirit-filled people. The truth that we have in Scripture, the glory of Christ. The, the Holy Spirit has been called the transparent person of the Holy Trinity. Meaning, the Holy Spirit is self-effacing. He points away from himself toward Christ. You see through the Holy Spirit to Jesus. That's why your antennas should always be suspicious when the Holy Spirit is being spoken of as if he's detached from the truth and the glory that are revealed in Christ. Again, as if the Spirit is a sort of personal life coach muttering supplemental truth that's not in the Bible to individual believers to help get them through the day. To be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, is to be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. As the Son glorifies the Father, so the Spirit glorifies the Son. Jesus says here, it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Again, the Spirit is not an innovator. He doesn't generate his own truth. All he does is he takes the person and the works and the teaching of Jesus and he brings them to light in the life of the church. Calvin, on this passage, says anytime we sever the work of the Spirit here from the words of Jesus Christ, we generate mischief. He was aware of this problem in a different form in his day. We have it in a certain form in our day, what I call the personal life coach form. In his day, all sorts of zany traditions were considered to be 
you know, in addition to Holy Scripture and binding on the church. And people could appeal to this passage. And Calvin said, that is to misread this passage. The Son received everything He was to say and do from the Father, and then the Spirit receives everything He is to say and do from the Son. Jesus summarizes it this way. He says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. So, If we step back a little bit, again, and try and get a big picture, we can say that the Spirit unveils the mystery of God to us. The glory of the Holy Trinity. From the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. That is how God speaks, and that is how He acts, and that is how He shows Himself. And how He shows Himself to you, how God reveals Himself to you, is rooted in who He is and His eternal being. So I'm going to close with three quick Applications. We'll call them Trinity, Evangelist, Prayer. The Trinity, the Evangelist, and Prayer. So first, the Trinity. You may have noticed a lot of Trinity stuff in the bulletin this morning. There's a lot there every, every morning, every Sunday. Right? The, the doxology is a Trinitarian hymn. The Gloria Patri is a Trinitarian hymn. The opening prayer usually ends with something like, who together with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit is worship one God now and forever. The opening prayer is Trinitarian. Right? The Apostles' Creed, Trinitarian. There's a section on the Father, section on the Son, section on the Spirit. The benediction is often Trinitarian. The Lord's Prayer is Trinitarian, although it would take a minute for me to draw that out. But the point is, the Trinity is everywhere imprinted on the liturgy of the church and has been from the ancient of days. And it's in this text. I mentioned earlier in this series that Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish Reformed pastor, theologian, he says that the Trinity must be of vital importance to the church because it's here in the upper room where Jesus has his last hours with his disciples, right? And night is closing in and Ferguson says the world is collapsing on these men and he spends an inordinate amount of time on the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit and the Son and the Son and the Father and the Spirit and the Father. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's his last few minutes with the disciples and it's Father, Son, Spirit, Son, Father, Father, Son, Spirit. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. And so Ferguson says, how is it possible that the church thinks that the Trinity is somehow superfluous? Or some sort of superficial add-on to the church? And the church has been mining the Gospel of John, especially these chapters, for glimpses into the inner life of God and the outer works of God for 2,000 years. To be filled with the Spirit is to be passionate about the Holy Trinity. To love God is to be a lover of these chapters. To be filled with the Spirit is to be a Trinitarian Christian with a passion for this God. From the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Jesus is emphasizing in his very last words the unity of the one God in the threeness of the persons. And it's no academic matter for him. right? It means 
that whatever God reveals to us and teaches us is coherent. Even in its diversity, even the great diversity of the Bible, there's one message. There's a deep, deep order and coherence, right? That's why, that's why Jesus spends so much time saying, whatever the Spirit told you, it'll be just what I told you. Whatever I told you, it's just what the Father told you. You know what else it means? It means that when the Spirit comes, there's no layer of separation, quite the contrary, between you and Jesus. That's why it's good. It's good that I go away. There's no separation that buffers you off from Jesus or from or from the Father. It's good that Jesus goes and sends the advocate. So the second point I want to look at here is the evangelist. God sends his son. And then even more universally, if you will, more toward the ends of the earth, he sends the spirit. There's a wonderful uh, saying in Irenaeus, a second century church father, in what is today France, a very, very famous father wrote a number of very famous books against an early anti-Christian movement known as Gnosticism. Very important figure in the second century. But Irenaeus used to say that the, that the Son and the Spirit are the Father's two hands by which he lays hold of the world. Right? There's the Father, there's the Son and the Spirit, and the triune God grips the world. It's a beautiful picture. Right? So that we think of it, when God sends the Holy Spirit, we think of God as the evangelizer of the world. Right? God is the great missionary, the great evangelist. The Spirit is not only the great apologist, he's the great evangelist. And to be like God means to be engaged in the Spirit's evangelical work in the world. Which, I remind you, we have an evangelism committee that's doing this work. And you might pray about joining and helping and supporting. So, the Spirit does, though, what all of our proclamation can't do. And this takes us back to the beginning. right? He alone softens the hostility and breaks through the hatred and unmasks the deceit and quickens hardened dead hearts. In short, The Spirit raises people from the dead. He saves. We witness. He convicts and proves and demonstrates. Finally, two things on prayer as we close. First, we should pray that the church, as Paul puts this in Ephesians 3, And let me remind you here as well, we have a prayer sheet, a monthly prayer sheet on the table. I haven't mentioned it in many months. But every month it changes, and it has a list of things that we are to pray through together as a community. And I encourage you to pick one up for the month of September if you don't have it. But one of the prayers that's mentioned right there at the front of that sheet is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. He prays that the Father would send his spirit so that his son could dwell in your heart richly. And he goes on to pray this for the church. Now, let me ask you something. When is the last time you've prayed a prayer that sounded like this? Paul says, actually, let me, let me I think I, ha- I have the text. I want to read it. He says, I pray that you, this is after saying that the Father will send the Spirit so that the Son can dwell in your heart. 
I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you, the Christian community, might be filled up to the fullness of the measure of the fullness of God. That's a man who listened to this text in John 16 and prays out of it for the Holy Trinity through the Spirit to flood the church with the very fullness of the life of God. And secondly, we should pray that having been filled, that same Spirit would go before us into the world like a pillar of cloud and fire. Send the Spirit out, Lord, as God the evangelist. And we follow, seeking to turn the world's hatred and enmity into friendship with the triune God in Christ. May God hear both our prayers. Amen. Amen.